This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and to see all the other classics in their series. Today's conversation is part of our fall series called What We Make of Ourselves. Week by week, we are working our way through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, identifying how the themes of this 19th century classic have much to say about life in the 21st century. I've been thinking, Hannah, about how we can look to the past, like look to this classic and learn from it. But I feel a little convicted, almost like so often it's easy to look to the past with a bless their heart perspective, if you know what I mean. Like, oh, hey, forget the past. they made all those mistakes. Forget the past. That's how I cope with the present. Read the news and I say, bless their heart. Bless their, bless heart. their heart. And that's that has that tinge of like, oh, they they keep doing that. Or they, they stupidly made those mistakes. Or they thought that. or And I'm above they, that. Right, right. It it has that that air of, well, I wouldn't do that. And so then I guess my conviction is, okay, we're reading this novel, we're seeing themes that apply. I feel like I can relate to these characters and their struggles and the things they're going through. But I'm stepping back even a little bit more. I'm wondering, well, am I taking this in as some good life lessons? Or is it more just like, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I totally am not taking this in as life lessons. <laughs> no, I, I no, am enjoying just for enjoyment. <laughs> I am enjoying sitting in judgment of some of the characters. I have to be honest, <laughs> because what they're doing and how they're behaving, it is above and beyond. I it's mean, extra as the kids. It would is say, extra as the young. Very, would say. very extra. Yeah. <laughs> but so there, there are these cycles, though that that I think maybe I have. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of margin for the first time you make the mistake, maybe even the second time. But by the time we get to the third, fourth cycle around, I'm just like, oh, my word. Can we not learn from this and develop? Like, I like developing characters. Um, I do, too. And, and so when you see this kind of cycle, whether it's in history or um, even in modern day, I think that's the thing that I struggle with. I'm like, oh, are we doing this again? This? Right. Are you serious? This? Can't we move on to something more interesting? Um, but even within the book, we see cycles. And, and I think we've kind of noted, I guess in literature, you call them themes, mm-hmm. you know, the same idea mm-hmm. presenting itself over and over again. And we've, 
you know, alluded to a lot of these within the last few episodes, but there are these cycles that the characters seem to go through. Um, and particularly with Victor, like, he cycles a ton. He does. And and we we are privy to his inner world, which is oh, that might the great it. thing. I mean, this is the great thing about a novel versus seeing a film. And I think that's been the distinction for me is that the clips that I've seen about movie or movies that are about Frankenstein, the scientist or the creature, they they just seem to present the the outward horror part of it. Whereas here we get to dive deep into Victor and all of his thoughts and and inner ramblings and and he really is torn up by his past and his mistakes and how he's feeling overwhelmed by them and it does just sort of spiral and cycle and it goes on and on yeah and maybe i'm being a little too harsh with victor to your point that he is the one character that we can really get inside of and understand his mental process his emotional process i mean like every process he's talking about everything all the time and i think that's Really, what we're going to look at in this episode is how is he processing? You know, he's made a mistake, clearly at the beginning. And then the rest of the book seems to be his varied attempts to deal with that mistake. And yet he just seems spiral and not really be successful in moving forward with handling the mistake. I've wondered about seeing or reading on paper all of the um the different rabbit trails his brain takes on thinking about the mistake what do i do about the mistake and i've thought well would my mental process look like that on paper and would someone read my mental script and think oh my goodness look at her going around the block again <laughs> but i think that mary shelley has done a wonderful job diving into the way that our brains are at work trying to make sense of things and trying to put things in order stories do that for us our brains are kind of built to think about story and to make sense of story and to bring things to some sort of good resolution and this is what we're seeing in this reading, this particular reading. So we're in volume three at chapters one through four, and we're in this final volume. I mean, we just have two sections left. And this one in particular is is that deep dive into what has happened and what is Victor doing to grapple with it. Right. So when we last left our hero, He was in the French Alps and he had encountered the creature he had made. And they finally got everything out on the table. The creatures told his story of the last two years of coming into civilization, his own kind of culturation. And he has a request for Victor and he says, look, I will stop being distraught and evil if you make me a female to be my companion, which, you know, it seems like a reasonable thing me right you know. he needs a partner in crime. he's a partner so victor <laughs> begrudgingly agrees um even though he has a lot of reservations and that's kind of how we ended volume two opening of volume three victor's back home they've returned from their foray in the french alps and he's actually doing a little bit better he, he seems to have a little distance from the things that have happened he seems to be recovering his sense of um 
joy. I don't even know if joy, but maybe happiness will give him a level there. Um, but he is also avoiding his promise to create this female. He just keeps pushing it off because he knows that it's something that once he engages in will send him into a spiral again. He's procrastinating. He's procrastinating. Right. That I final that. project. I, right. I get that. <laughs> But he is also cycling through. Like, there's enough good times that they know that his family around him recognizes it, but then he'll fall into this cycle of melancholy. So eventually, his father approaches him and says, you know, we need to do something about this. We really want to see you happy. Um, Is it, you know, are you upset about the impending marriage to Elizabeth? What are you thinking? We need to move forward in life. Like, we're kind of stuck here in this cycle. Let's move forward. So the solution to this that everybody dreams up is that Victor will take a two-year tour of England and France with Henry, and then at the end of that tour, come home to marry Elizabeth. Doctor's order. Two things here. First of all, I love the idea that I'm melancholy. Let me take a two-year tour. Yes, let's do that. I would love to do that. But the second thing here that I think is odd or I guess just telling, is that it's just presumed that Elizabeth is going to be okay. Like, let's just assume they had a nice side conversation and Victor said, hey, Elizabeth, are you okay waiting two more years? But otherwise, it's like, how come you get to run off for two more years and put her on hold? Well, Elizabeth (laughs) does make this comment. She's basically like, I'm so happy you're going because I just want to see you happy. But it sure stinks that I don't get to go because I would love to be developed in this way. Yeah. Yeah. So like Come on Mary now. Shelley does get her dig in there as the so daughter too. of proto feminist. She does <laughs> say, Hey, this really isn't fair. Elizabeth should have the chance to develop herself as well. Mm-hmm. But it comes to nothing. So um Victor resumes his tour with his friend Henry. They go off for two years, and Victor pretty much says he he's he thinks his creature will follow him. Like he has this sense that um the creature's gonna always be in the background. Mm-hmm. always trying to uh, see if he's going to fulfill his promise. But in Victor's mind, this is a good thing because he's in a way luring the creature away from his family. So that's how you convince yourself to go on a two-year tour of Europe. <laughs> you really are taking care of your family because right. you're taking care it's of... It's for them. He's a giver. <laughs> that's right. Giver. So he and Henry go off and they, um, you know, he along the way, starts collecting the things he needs. So he's going to move forward with creating this female to parallel his creature. He hates it. It it makes him feel like he's under torment, but he's going to do it. So he's got this mixed emotion where he's touring with Henry. Henry's having grand old time, just (laughs) as one does. I mean, two years in Western Europe. (laughs) But... Victor still is carrying like this little thundercloud over his head and raining on everybody's parade all the time. And Henry can't quite understand it. And at one point they decide to separate. Henry's going to go off travel um, within the British Isles. And Victor's like, I really need to get down to work. I really need to finish um, this. I think he calls it a filthy process. So he's going to go off to... Scotland, the wilds of Scotland, to finally make this creature, his Scottish bride, I guess, um, (laughs) of his creature. And so he goes and finds this 
really remote town and village. He finds this abandoned cottage and he sets up shop there. And um, he he begins work. Um, and along the way, he has all of these doubts, but he keeps doing it. Um, and as he's coming to the end of completing the female, he looks up and his reach is... Victor was right. He did follow he him. He did follow mm-hmm. him. And the creature actually is just like checking in to be like, is she done yet? Right. Um, I mean, he's excited but to meet her. Victor, when he sees the creature, kind of snaps too, and he realizes that this can't happen. He he cannot bring another creature into the world that could possibly even replicate and, you know, bring all kinds of destruction on humanity. So he destroys this female, has not brought her to life yet, but he he uh, mutilates her and, and destroys her. And the creature that he created sees this and he he is livid and angry and he promises retaliation. And he, he says to Victor, I will be with you on your wedding night. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. <laughs> this is going to be very important later on. It is. But then mm-hmm. they run away from each other because that seems to be the way their relationship works. It's a yes. flash of conflict and then run to your retreating corners. So the monster leaves and goes off somewhere and Victor spends a night or two just kind of brooding. He's wandering around thinking, kind of cycling. And then ultimately he decides to take all of the parts, I guess. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. where the novel did get a little gruesome. It's gruesome. And I, I'm thinking that even in some of the films, if I'm guessing if they depict this part, this is where some of that gore part would come in. Yeah, he just packs up all they the parts. He packs up the parts and packs he puts himself in a boat and he launches out and he dumps it over. Which, with great relief, he has made his decision. He's not going to go down this track. And he's so relieved that he collapses in the boat to sleep. Because that apparently is the way we handle mental and emotional fatigue. Travel and napping. Travel yes. and napping. So he falls asleep in the boat. And when he wakes up, he's completely blown off course. And he has to fight the elements and eventually finds himself coming ashore in Ireland. And as soon as he comes ashore, there's an angry crowd that grabs him and takes him and arrests him and accuses him of murder. And obviously, this is a case of mistaken identity, but there's all this circumstantial evidence that they think that he's the one that has committed a murder now he doesn't know anything about the murder he doesn't know anything is going on but then as he's in the jail he finally discovers that the murdered victim is could you guess henry his poor friend his poor friend who was having such a grand time he was having a great time and then he got murdered and so victor Mm -hmm. is accused of the murder and fever and madness descend and he takes to his bed within the prison another time of taking to his bed so he's this guy has had a lot of emotional strain yeah i mean i do feel bad for him i mean but Mm -hmm. this is what happens when we don't handle our mistakes well you know we cycle right (laughs) anyway he's in the prison for two months um feverish at the point of death and his father arrives somehow his father hears 
um, of his fate and arrives. And testimony comes from Scotland that clears Victor that someone had seen him in a certain place at the time of the murder. He couldn't possibly have committed it and he's free to go home. But Victor knows that while he may be innocent of the murder, still has this weight of the death of William and Justine and now of Henry. And so he's still struggling under the weight of a bad conscience and what his mistake had brought upon the world. Um, And so he ends up this section really not in a good place. And he's coping with all of this. By the time we resolve this section, he's coping with drugs and he has become dependent um, on them. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Well, it seems to me, Hannah, that this whole section is really the culmination of the question, what do we do with the mistakes that we've made? And there are all kinds of implications here looking at all of our options for what do we do when we've made mistakes? And and Victor has tried all kinds of things Mm -hmm. to respond to the mistake that he's made. And it gives us a bit of a a reflection of this is what we do when we're caught in these circumstances, often of our own making. (laughs) Um, What do we do with that and how do we handle it and move forward? Now, I will admit, though, I did not see this on my first read. I I saw what was really at the surface of this section was a lot of focus on Victor's feelings. Mm-hmm. Was he melancholy? Mm-hmm. Was he happy? And and he seemed very volatile. And and my initial reaction was, oh my word, dude, get it together! Can you please <laughs> just deal? And and I kind of because that's what you see on the surface, right? Is, I kind of got distracted yeah. by that kind of superficial emotional focus. And and he himself seems to be kind of absorbed in that. Yeah. And, and what I realized, though, you know, as we've talked and as I kind of reflected, is that it, our feelings are only indicators of something yeah. deeper. And so you've got to trace them back to what's actually going on. And mm-hmm. even though it really presents as this emotional instability, which to me feels a little immature, um, what's actually happening is that Victor has not yet dealt with his initial mistake of creating this creature. 
And he's gone around the bush a hundred different times. And at this point in the novel, things have really, really built so that his emotions are completely out of control. But they are simply the symptom. They're not cause. Right. If you think of emotions as the dashboard, as as the the indicators, the gauges of showing what's going on inside, we can see on the surface, oh, he has melancholy. He is feverish and upset to the point of death. Um, he is isolating. Like there are all these things that he's doing and he's upset and you can tell that he there's something wrong. But all of those things are coming from somewhere. There's a reason why he is feeling these things. And and then we can kind of push that through and see, well, what what is the root of this? What's stirring all of this emotion? Where is it coming from? And I think even for for us, like how you said you thought it was, hey, this is immaturity. It's like, well, Maybe, maybe the immaturity is that he didn't deal with the mistake, but the emotions are valid. Like, this is how you would react if if this is how your life is unfolding. These things are reasonable because the mistakes that he has made, they just are compounding. Right. And I think we have to be careful even in processing our own emotions or engaging with folks who are working through difficult times to recognize that. The validity of a feeling doesn't mean the validity of the thing that's behind it. So mm-hmm. so we can say, mm-hmm. yes, this is a real thing you're feeling. This is a true thing you're feeling. But let's get to what's underneath it. Let's understand why this is happening. And I'll even be sorry for you in your very overwhelming yeah. feelings because I understand yeah. that level of being trapped by them. But if we go back to the underlying question of um, how have you been able to resolve thing underneath? How have you been able to resolve your mistake? Looking back through the book, like at this point, we have a, a, a great deal of perspective about how yeah. he has tried to deal with the initial mistake. And mm-hmm. I was just sat down and was kind of thinking through what did he do? I mean, he's taken so many different routes. He, right. He's tried to isolate at first. He just uh-huh. hid himself away from his family. He ran away from the creature he had made. He and he told no one. He told no so one. So that isolating mm-hmm. and a, an avoidance and really silence, um, secretiveness. Yes, he mm-hmm. kind of trying to hide it. If I can yep. just keep away from people, he's eventually called back to his family and into relationship, but he still doesn't tell them. He's living an isolated life, even within community. Yeah, I think too. You know he. He does try to escape in other ways, like the whole travel bit, like that's yeah. just a form of avoidance and escapism. Like, definitely, maybe I can do something that I will enjoy enough that I don't actually have to deal with the thing that's still very present. So I saw that. I also saw that, um, you know, there's a level of blame. I think he blames himself. Um, but sometimes he blames the creature for things that he should own. Yeah, I saw that too, where there was the sense of, well, if you didn't exist, I wouldn't have to feel this way. Right. And um, it's jumping over the fact that, well, you created this thing, like you did that, like you put this thing in motion. <laughs> and um, 
And instead of placing that fault on the creature, it's like, okay, back that up just a little bit and and think through where right. that origin comes from. Where Where is it originating? Right. And, and so I think that is the fundamental mistake of what are you responsible for and what are you not responsible for? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I don't really think he should take responsibility for the actions of the creature, but he should take responsibility for his own actions. And yeah. and that seems to be something he quite he can't quite yet face, um, and so that's where all these coping mechanisms come in. He he hasn't at root really faced and dealt with and taken responsibility for his choice, and and that may seem funny because he sounds like he is. He's right. constantly blaming himself. He's constantly sitting in the shame. He's constantly talking about how terrible he is. But I think one thing that's interesting about this is is confessing on his terms like he's only taking responsibility and shame in a way that he can handle um he he is he's setting the frame of the way he's going to deal with it without other people and so he only ever sets the frame in a way that he can handle even though it's really really hard because there's never a question of well what drove me ambition wise to even think that this was a good idea in the first place to create this thing there's never that analysis it's always i made this and like oh now all these terrible things have happened instead of well there was a reason why you even thought this was a good idea in the first place look at that and i think because he didn't look at that part that ambition part um then another way that he tried to cope is he's going to make more mistakes by making another creature, by making a female to give companionship. And so it's like, oh, well, here's another thing. Let me just fix this by, by making another mistake, making it worse, like going further down that road. And so I think that there's a tie there between not recognizing his role in initiating this chain of events. Right. And and you can see he's a man in process. I mean, we want to give him yeah. the space and margin to work through this. But but he is at each turn kind of trying to cope in a slightly different way. And so like he reaches the point where, as you said, he hasn't really dealt with the underlying ambition. And he goes back to that ambition. He does. That mm-hmm. created this problem in the first place. And he's like, well, maybe if I just make another one, that right. will solve this. And And thankfully, he stops like he stops himself and he understands um he reaches this point of clarity that that is not something that he can do but then he goes into this space of well maybe if i just do better maybe if i Mm -hmm. just get rid of this female creature um that will be a good thing but what he doesn't ever do solve the original mistake so he's trying to do better in this sense um, he's not going to repeat that mistake, but the original one is still out traipsing around the world, ma- murdering people. And right, the, he hasn't solved that. Right, and, like he, he's still not solving. Oh, here's this creature I've made who is wandering the earth and wreaking havoc. Like he needs another solution, but it's almost like once he dumps the female, he thinks, "Well, done with that." Right, Fixed. like I, I've done a good thing now. Yes, yes, and and I can't get over this kind of tension between. He's isolated around people. He won't tell people the truth. He won't get help. He 
he continues on to be in quasi-relationship with them. And in some way, because he won't open up to them about the truth and get their help, he ends up kind of draining them. He ends up relying mm-hmm. on them for goodness and stability, like Henry and Elizabeth particularly play that role in his life, where he can see them as good people. And in some way, maybe being close to them will help him compensate with his stuff, but he never has to truly open up. He never has to truly let them into what's happened to confess, um, you know, what he's done wrong and get their help. I mean, you know, the five of them are, you know, at any point, all of them could take the monster. That's just the thing that I can't get over. Like, (laughs) this certainly get some people around you. You could take them. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, just get them up. We could do this. I've I've been wrestling with this is that his solution has been keep this thing away, make him a female, send him off, kill him. You know, there are all these things that he's doing to try to push his mistake away. And I, I'm just so curious why why is it that an option wasn't to welcome this mistake in and say, well, I've created this thing. Now I'm going to take responsibility. And guess what, Henry and Elizabeth, we've got a new person in our life and we're going to welcome him in and care for him because I did this thing. Like, you have to own it. Yeah. Like, there were very strange family dynamics to begin with. I don't think. Right. So I mean, this would add to it. Add creature to the mix. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but I, I think it's telling and. And again, telling of human nature, how we make mistakes and then we want to get as far away from it as possible. We don't want to weave that thing into our narrative and make it part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's tough. I mean, that's a hard thing to do is to um, say that this is the life that I've created in some ways because of the mistakes, because of my actions, and then find a way to live in it because that's the truth. I mean, that's that's really hard to do. And and I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to offer a theory that probably has no basis in reality and it's just for fun. But I couldn't help read this whole book and especially Victor through the lens of Mary Shelley's backstory. Um, that she was drug around Europe by her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, with their entourage of friends that included Lord Byron, who themselves had to be, like, very complicated people. Like, mm-hmm. if you read the narrative, there's just, like, a lot of crossing of lines. Everybody's hooking up with everybody else. They're traipsing around Europe. Mary Shelley's, like, uh, 18. You know, she's already yeah. had yeah, a child. Young. Um, so like she existed in this world that had to be chaotic and I'm going to read into this probably a lot of emotional and mental instability within the men around her, like a level of just, uh, complicatedness and fragility and constantly seeking some other, um, experience or high or mm-hmm. something to kind of resolve all the mistakes. And, and so it's interesting because she opens the novel saying this is to show the amiableness of the domestic condition. 
And and that just like I couldn't help but like wonder like how much are you using these people for character development? I mean, that's what they say. Hey, don't be weird in my life because you'll find a way into my novels. That's right. right? right. <laughs> like you will become a character. So watch yourselves. <laughs> and and like I said, obviously there's no. We don't know. We don't know. But, but, but I like to think that. I like to think <laughs> well, that this like is the Mary Shelley's outlet. Yes. For dealing with all of the ridiculousness. <laughs> and, and I really she like. She had lots of fodder, didn't she? <laughs> I really like that they probably read it and had no idea <laughs> that she was writing about them. I, I like this idea a whole lot. But again, back to the question of how we we cope with our mistakes. I think this has been throughout the book. We see this avoidance and we see him running away from mm-hmm. his mistakes. We see it physically where he creates the being and the first thing he does is runs away. So he's running away from responsibility throughout the entire book. And yet there's also this sense that he himself had to deal with this, that he had created this problem. Therefore, he was the one who had to solve it and he couldn't bring other people into it. And Mm -hmm. I was just struck how much that goes against kind of a Christian understanding of how we deal with our mistakes. And within a Christian framework, it is that we would confess, that we would bring our mistakes out in the open because we know we have safety, because we believe in Mm -hmm. grace, because we believe in forgiveness. That part of repentance of whatever we're dealing with is confessing that, bringing it into the light, and then getting the help we need, getting other people involved in coming alongside us. And, you know, dealing with the creature that is hounding us. Right. I mean, that requires a relinquishing of control because once you admit to your mistakes and admit that you've erred, you don't know how people are going to respond. And so then your only safe landing is redemption in Christ. And you know that's sure. But what you don't know is the fallout that will come when you admit, hey, I I did this or I've made this mistake. There are consequences, even though there is grace in in Jesus. There's there are still very real consequences that we have for the things that we've done and that create these spirals and create the 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 domino effect. You did this and then this happened and this happened. It's like all of that can come from your one one choice and one action. And so you have to wrestle with all of that and come to grips with, yes, I am capable of making a mess this big. And um, and then walking it out um, in forgiveness that you have. Because the, the other piece of a kind of a Christian vision of dealing with our mistakes, it is confession, it is repentance, it is bringing other people into... Um, our mistakes to help us, but it also involves restoration. And I think mm-hmm. this is a piece that often gets overlooked that, especially within the Old Testament law, you see this principle that if you've done something, if you've taken a sheep or something, you have to restore that four times to the person you've right. harmed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could look, you, at first glance, you could see that as somewhat uh, vindictive or punitive, like really doubling down on the person who had done something wrong. 
But I see it as a way of restoring that person, of giving them a process by which they can deal with the harm that they've enacted. So that Mm -hmm. I'm restoring the harm, but I'm also restoring it four times over so that there is no question that I have given more than I took or have taken. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that is really a gift to the person who has harmed. Um, it, It is a way of them coming out from under and not having to live with that kind of weight and knowledge that, yes, I may be forgiven, but there's real world harm that I have done. And, but all of that, and, and I will say this to your point earlier, all of that takes humility. It, yeah. it takes a, a level of just being broken to the point where you finally give up and you give in. And if Victor has not yet dealt with the fundamental ambition that drove him to create this creature in the first place, then he's really not acting in humility even though he feels guilty all the time. And there's a difference between saying, I feel really bad about what I've done and I'm humble and I'm broken and I'm ready to confess and get the help I need. Well, all of this is so helpful in terms of understanding ourselves, understanding Victor. And I cannot believe that here we are winding down this whole series. We have one last reading And uh, we are going to be heading into the conclusion. What is going to happen to Victor and the creature? Well, there's a lot to be resolved yet. Mm -hmm. We got to figure out what happens to Victor and the creature, Elizabeth. We have to figure out what happens to Robert. Because remember, Mm -hmm. this is a frame novel. So this story is all playing out within the larger story of what Robert Walton is learning from. And so there's a lot that gets tied up in this last section. Well, if you've enjoyed this series, come on out and talk to us about it. We are on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC, and we are also in the Christ in Pop Culture member forum where we have a thread going about all that has been happening within Frankenstein. We want to say thanks to Jonathan Clausen. He's our producer for Persuasion, and he produces all the shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can find all those shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for them over at iTunes. Thanks to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.